So we're going through a, a message series, Authentic Living Today. You already know this because you've been through it uh, so far. Next week is the last one, but today, 1 Peter chapter... Are you kidding me? It's 2 Peter, and it's not 16. Anyway, scratch that. It's 2 Peter, and we're going to pick up with where we left off last week. Verse 19 is where we start today, but I'll back up a little bit. You'll see that, so don't write this down if you're taking notes. We'll be in 2 Peter. We'll be in uh, chapter 2, because we got that far last week, and we left with verse 19. The message today is once saved, always saved. But I'll tell you that next week is when we will announce a new message series. So hopefully you're here for that. That's also when we have the last message, which is about eschatology. More stuff about end times in the final piece in Peter's end of his letters. But today... We are going to discuss the once saved, always saved subject. I want to take you to John chapter 10, verse 27 first. We'll read through verse 29. This is Jesus speaking. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. The question is, can a person reject Christ? The question isn't, can someone snatch a person out of Christ's hand or the Father's hand? The answer to that is no. But the question is, can a person reject once they've accepted? That's the question. I want to show you a piece of history. I don't I've got one more copy, I think, sitting on the table over there, but this is from Thompson Chain Reference uh, uh, Bible in the history of the Bible. He was a King James uh, person, loved the King James Bible, but he gave us a history. It, I will make some more copies if you want them. We've got this over in the lobby at the door. But what I want to do is show you, and I illustrate this, I put it up often to to show you that the King James Bible is, was definitely not the first English translation. It's a revision at least five times over. But I want to show you something because it's, it's significant. In Wycliffe was the first English translation. It wasn't a complete translation, but it was the first. And, and you can see it on the chart behind me. And you see Tyndale was the one after Wycliffe. Both are very reputable. But I, I want to talk about the stuff in between. You'll see a red line will come up in between those two right now. And it's going to go up to another place you'll see up behind me. Because I want to talk about this stuff. And Martin Luther, um, his timeline is in between those two translations. Uh, that's when he nailed his 95 theses on the Wittenberg door in the castle church in, in Wittenberg, Germany. This is also when... Other things happen that are significant, and I, I want to bring that to your attention. Um, a person by the name of John Huss, and this, that's the way you write it. Uh, you, you'll see it written J-O-H-N as well sometimes, but John Huss, you can see his lifespan um, ended. <laughs> uh, look at this date. You'll see July 6, 1415. I bring it up now because we 
have that day coming up soon. That's a significant date in history. It was in 1999 that Pope John Paul II apologized for what happened to John Huss. That's a long time after the fact, don't you think? (laughs) They apologized because of what the church did to John Huss. Now, John Huss and 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 um, you got to know Wycliffe. He was he taught the same of the same things that John Huss did, and the church was very mad at Wycliffe. But and they they both wrote about these things, but Wycliffe didn't have the fate of John Huss. John Huss, and they believe some weird things like transubstantiation. Have you heard of this? Wycliffe's one of the guys that kind of. Um, really push that. Um, y'all know what that is? Have y'all heard this? Transubstantiation, that's when, when uh, the, the, that's what he taught and John Huss believed as well and taught. It's the belief that when you have communion, when, it, when the communion is blessed by a priest or, or when you have communion, it actually physically becomes the physical body of Christ. And in other words, a real manifestation happens. It becomes the body of Christ. It's not just a symbol. It becomes the thing. And, and it's why, one of these reasons why you'll hear priests, sometimes even today, tell their people, don't spit until an hour after you've had communion, because if you spit, then somebody could walk along and step on Christ. It's a weird thing. It's very, very weird. I know. But John Huss had some very good beliefs as well. He was a solid Christian. I believe that we'll see him in heaven. But, and same thing with Wycliffe. But John Huss, he was chained, he was, he was tied and chained to a stake. And kindling was put all around him up to his neck. And he was told, take back everything you've said. He spoke against the church, especially indulgences. Don't, you shouldn't. Do this. You shouldn't be taking money from people for, their, for anybody's salvation. Same thing Martin Luther spoke against. And this was before Luther. But John Huss on July 6, 1415 said that he would not. He said, Jesus, help us. In his prayer. They had trouble getting the fire lit. So a woman walked by thinking that she was doing a good thing, helped with a little kindling of her own, and that helped the fire get going. And John Huss said, holy simplicity. And that's become a thing now. That's a, that's a thing where people, sometimes they think they're doing a good thing when they're actually doing a horribly evil thing. The church thought it was doing a good thing. The Catholic church thought it was doing a good thing by killing John Huss because he was a heretic, his false teaching. And then they apologized in 1999 because it was wrong. I wanted to tell you that because that's a significant part of history and it's a, it's a very weird thing that how things have turned around over time, especially now that we know the Catholic Church actually esteems John Huss after they put him to death. I want to talk to you about John Calvin now. You'll see this next uh, picture. I think that's the thing. There you go. That's how you say it. 
You see his lifespan there. He, he was a contemporary of, he was eight years old when Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis on the Wittenberg door. Wittenberg, Germany, and the Castle Church. And you can see up behind me uh, who also influenced John Calvin hugely was Augustine. You can see Augustine's uh, name and his uh, lifespan. He's a long time before any of these other people we've been talking about. But Augustine had some beliefs that were definitely contrary to the, the norm. John Calvin popularized much of Augustine's teachings. John Calvin, John Huss, Martin Luther, and many others held to Augustine's beliefs. And the reason why they did this is because the church had become increasingly more about works, works-based, legalistic salvation. And this happens a lot. The more you focus on doctrine, and doctrine's important. First Timothy 4.16, if you haven't written that down, you should know that passage. Doctrine has everything to do with salvation. The problem is, so many times people get so caught up in the doctrine that they forget that it's all about the grace of God, that we cannot do anything to save ourselves without the cross. So we can never have enough pride to think that we are something special. Jesus is. He loves us, and because of the cross, we can be saved. But what happened is John Calvin developed a system that has impacted the church today. Most churches embrace some form of Calvinism. And I want to, we're going to touch on that today. But I want to give you my opinion, and I think it's, uh, I don't give you my opinion unless I tell you it's my opinion. I'm not smart enough to tell you my opinion about Scripture, but I'll tell you my opinion about John Calvin and all these others, I think their hearts were in the right place, and I do think I'll see them in heaven. Every person I've named, I think I'll see them in heaven. But I believe they are motivated by something like this kind of a passage. I want to read to you from 1 John chapter 4, verses 16 and following. So we have come to know and to believe that love that God, the love that God has for us God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. Now, pay careful attention to that because I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on that, but you can see abiding, you can say in other words, stay in God's love. If you can, it's an interesting, whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. So it's a possibility of stepping outside of it. You, I hope you understand that when you read this. By this, is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Every uh, perfected in love overcomes a person to that he is enslaved. So... Let me go back to this. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love overcomes a person to that he is enslaved. So I want you to know this. Perfect love casts out fear. That's what this says. 
What does that mean? Let me explain it to you in a nutshell, how it works. Let's say some of you have kids back in here. Let's say a couple of the kids, let's say there's a couple of siblings and they're not getting along. And you say, now say, I love you. Okay, I love you. The other one, say, I love you. Okay, because you're going to get in trouble if you don't. <laughs> Just like you, you know, we all, we can have issues. If we, if we decided, all of us here today, if suddenly... There's something that happens, and maybe, you know, somebody, some government official says, everybody's off tomorrow, nothing's open, you all get to relax, and we decide we're just going to hang out, all of us. We could get on each other's nerves, especially if it happens like over a three-day period. I have this thing I tell lots of people. We've done, we, I visit my family back in Louisiana. We've done it, we used to, every other year, we do a big Thanksgiving gathering. Any time that we hang out for more than three days, if it's going to be a visit with family for more than three days, we got to take a break because that's about the toleration limit. It doesn't matter who it is. You have family come to see you. They're there for a week. On that, after that third day or on that third day, take a break. Say, we're leaving. You can stay at the house. We're going to be gone all day. <laughs> take a break because you could get on each other's nerves so easily. Get that little break in there. We could get on each other's nerves, but you know, we'll say things like Christians do. Got, gotta love them. That's my brother. That's my sister. Gotta love them. Because God doesn't want us to dislike or hate our, our brothers and sisters in Christ. But the reality is, perfect love drives out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. You don't love somebody because you're going to get in trouble if you don't. You love somebody because you have love within you that is, it just exudes. It just comes from you. That's perfect love. Love that is forced is not perfect love. Love that is based on fear is not perfect love. Love that is, if, if you love because you think God's going to be upset with you, if you don't love those people, you haven't perfected love yet. You love people because God loves you. And He's perfect. Of all the people who could hold a grudge, who could get upset with our behaviors, it's God, but He chooses to love us. That's what the cross was about. That's perfect love. And if we could love like that, where we love because it's in us. God loved us, so we love others. That's perfect love. Perfect love casts out fear. It's still love if you love people because you don't want to get in trouble because you don't. That's still love. It's just not perfect love. Does that make sense? Perfect love casts out fear. I believe John Calvin was motivated by perfect love. So in my mind, when I think of somebody who is close to God, they love Jesus and they love others because it just comes from them because they, they know their love, so they love others. I don't understand how anybody could ever walk away from God. It doesn't make sense to me. I understand discouragement can happen, but I do not understand how anybody who knows the love of Christ could ever walk away from that. It doesn't make sense to me. And I, I know that that's what John Wycliffe, I know that's what John Huss, I know that's what John Calvin especially, I know, that, I, I know that's motive. at least I believe that's my opinion, that they're motivated from a genuine and pure heart, how could anybody walk away from the love of Christ? It makes no sense. But that's not the question. The question isn't, you know, whether or not it makes sense to me or John Calvin or anybody else. 
The question is, what does the Bible teach? So it isn't about how it feels. It's about what the Bible teaches. It's not about what I think. It's about what the Bible teaches. Isn't that right? It doesn't matter what you were taught or what I was taught. It doesn't matter what we heard the preacher on the radio say. It doesn't matter what the televangelist said. It doesn't matter what all the books we read says. What this book says is what goes. Are you with me? Okay, so let's see. I, I, want, I want you to know, we, don't, we can't do an exhaustive study this morning on once saved, always saved. But what we can do is let the Scripture in our text tell us a little bit, and, and we'll look at some support texts. Please do your own homework. Study for yourself. And if you've got an issue with anything that I say, please talk to me about it. I would love your guidance if you've got some wisdom that I don't. But always, no matter what I say, the televangelist, the radio preacher, always go with Scripture. So let's talk about Calvinism quickly. Calvinism can be summed up in a nutshell as tulip. Have you heard of this? Calvinism is essentially broken down into these five subjects that are taught by, they were perpetuated by John Calvin and embraced by many denominations. Many people have embraced Calvinism, and some of Calvinism is very biblical. Some? Let's check. We're going to focus on the P of Tula, perseverance of the saints. And that particular P, perseverance of the saints, is what we call today once saved, always saved, which means once a person is in Christ, they can never be out of Christ. So we have to ask the question. Even though that's what John Calvin teaches, and even though no one can pry us out of the hand of God or of Christ, the question is, what does the Bible say? What I think, not what John Calvin thought, what does the Bible say? Now, how I feel about it. So, let's go ahead and look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 3. Like I said, I would back up a little bit. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 3. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So as he goes through a rundown of false teachers... He uses the word condemnation. Okay. We understand their destiny. False teachers. Teachers who are teaching Christianity, but they're teaching it incorrectly. These particular ones are condemned. And it, it, there's a horrible picture. It's like it's, it talks about you know, how they're tossed around uh, in their doctrine. But let's go a little bit further. We've got a lot to cover. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 15 and following. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. If you'll remember, I talked about it last week. You remember Balaam's problem was God was clear. You, you don't curse God's people, but here was the enemy asking Balaam to curse God's people, and he had the nerve to actually approach God and say, hey, what do you think? Really? If God says it's wrong, it's wrong, and you can't negotiate that. 
That was his error. But pay attention to the first part of this. I've got it underlined up behind me. Forsaking the right way. So what does that mean? Forsaking the right way. That means he left the right way. Those people left the right way. They have gone astray. Which means... What does it mean when you've gone astray? That means you were once in the right place. You're no longer in the right place. Now you're in the wrong place. That's what that means. Let's go on. Picking up with verse 17. These are waterless springs. Now, how, how, how does that describe things to you? These are waterless springs. We'll go to the next text if you don't mind. These are waterless springs. How, good is, how would you like if you buy a piece of property? Hey, this property has a spring on it. Oh, that'd be nice because then we have water always coming. No, no, it's a waterless spring. What? How is a spring a spring without water? It's not. Waterless spring, worthless. You get the description God is giving here. People that were once in the right place, now they're in the wrong place. And they're worthless. Wow. And mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passage of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. So people that are they're just now getting away from other false teachers. These people pull them back in with their false teaching. Does this give you the impression that there may come a time when people are teaching false teaching here, false teaching there, false teaching there. You go from this one, you go to that one, right to the next one because they entice you in. Does that sound like a world we might be living in today? Mm -hmm. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. That's the way it works. Who is your master? Jesus said you can only serve one master. He's talking about money. But if you can only serve one master, then who is your master? And if something controls you, what's to be said about the fruit of the Spirit called self-control? If you have a habit and you know you should stop, but you don't, who's in charge? Is that habit controlling you? Who wants to be controlled by a habit? And if you're going to make Jesus your Lord, you should not have other things controlling you. It should be Jesus. And if you have something that's controlling you that is not Him, you're enslaved to that. Who's your master? Okay, so moving further, uh, 2 Peter Chapter 2, verse 20. I don't know if you caught that. I just read verse 19. Now we're going to get into some serious meat. Look at this. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world, you know how to do that, don't you? Look at it. It tells you. Through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Are you serious? Wait, it gets clearer. Listen to this. Look at verse 21. This is the one, if you don't have it highlighted, this is probably one you will. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Wow. Let's, let's just uh, take a moment and listen to some words 
from Adam Clark's commentary. I'm going to go back to him in a minute as well. As applied here, it is very expressive. The poor sinner, having heard the gospel of Christ, was led to loathe and reject his sin, and on his application to God for mercy was washed from his unrighteousness, but he is here represented as taking up again what he had before rejected and defiling himself and that from which he had been cleansed. I'll go back to him in a minute. I want to read that verse again because I want to pick it apart a little bit. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. I want to show you something. Let's just pick it apart. So let's, let's go ahead and classify never righteous. That's one category we'll see in a chart behind me. And then we'll also look at now not righteous. And let's draw a line right between them. You'll see this red line go right up the middle. And we'll go ahead and simplify the never righteous, never saved. And we'll simplify now not righteous, now not saved. I want you to understand in both conditions, they're lost. We got lost, lost. You see that up on the chart behind me, right? They're both lost. If they're never saved, they're lost. If they're now not saved, they're lost. Everybody with me? Okay. But still, this, the crazy thing is, God says that those that were never saved in the first place are better. And that those who were now not saved are worse. Wait a minute. They're, they're both lost. That's another subject altogether. I've got a document I'll try to remember. Ask me if I don't get it to you, but I've, it's kind of a lengthy document of the different levels of sin and punishment. We live in a world where people have said for a long time that all sin is equal. I don't have time to get into fleshing that out, so I'll bring a document for you. You've heard this, right? All sin is equal. Nobody really believes it. We just say it. Because nobody believes that on your way to church this morning, I'm just making up a story. On your way to church, you got pulled over because you didn't realize they turned it into a construction zone. You didn't see it. You looked that way when you passed the sign that was over here. And now you've got a speeding ticket, which in God's eyes, you know, breaking the law, that is sin. So you sinned. And you incidentally did it. You didn't realize that they changed it to a work zone. Now you got a big ticket. Oh, I'm so sorry, Lord. You, nobody thinks that's exactly the same as a serial child molester. Does anybody think that's equal? Anybody? Now you say, well, God, God teaches that. No, he doesn't. Did, did Jesus ever say that man is guilty of a greater sin? Well, then I'd say he knows what he's talking about. And there's a whole, there's a couple hundred passages that talk about the different levels of sin and punishment. But the interesting thing is in this particular case, somebody who was once saved but now is not is worse than someone who has never been saved. Both are lost, but one's worse than the other, so evidently there's going to be a worse punishment. I don't want to be in either position. Now, right about this time, some of you might be thinking, I don't like the way this is going. I don't, I don't want to feel like I'm 
I've stepped outside of it. And now, because I know I've, I was saved, but I've made some mistakes. Everybody messes up. And I'm afraid some of mine might have, hold on, stay with me. There are some very encouraging passages that we're going to look at. We're not going to take a whole lot of time to do that, but I will uh, give you some encouraging words right out of God's Word on this subject concerning the condition of your soul. But let's read that verse one more time so we clearly understand it, because it's God's Word. 2 Peter 2.21, For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. And then the next verse, verse 22, For the true proverb says, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The God, or the dog, hey, by the way, do you know what, you know, um, what the dyslexic atheist says? There is no dog. So, <laughs> I'll start over. Uh, what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. That's a horrible thought. And, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. So the first part is a proverb, Proverbs 26, 11, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. The second part is a phrase that Peter is endorsing. Now, so that's the thing. The, what this teaching is, is like, you were once all nasty. You went to Christ, he cleaned you up. Don't go back to the nasty. Listen to this in Adam Clark's commentary. I said I'd get back to it. I've got two slides with his words. And I'm going to rely on the words on the back wall because it's too fine a print for me to read in my notes. Here is a sad proof of the possibility of falling from grace and from very high degrees of it too. These had escaped from the contagion that was in the world. They had had true repentance and cast up their sour, sweet morsel of sin they had been washed from all their filthiness, and this must have been through the blood of the Lamb. Yet, after all, they went back, got entangled with their old sins, swallowed down their formerly rejected lusts, and rewallowed in the mire of corruption. It's no wonder that God should say, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. Reason and nature say it must be so. And, the, and divine justice says it ought to be so. And the person himself must confess that it is right that it should be so. But how dreadful is this state? How dangerous when the person has abandoned himself to his old sins. Next slide. Yet it is not said that it is impossible for him to return to his maker. Though his case be deplorable, it is not utterly hopeless. The leper may yet be made clean, and the dead may be raised. Reader, is thy backsliding a grief and burden to thee? Then thou art not far from the kingdom of God. So, we'll even see that in some more passages that we will read. I want to give you some support texts. Now, Understand the difference in proof texting and support text. Proof testing, texting is when you believe something, so you go try to find scriptures to support your belief. Don't do that. 
Find out what the Bible says by looking up relevant passages that they happen to relate to the subject at hand and believe whatever you read in the Bible because this is God's wisdom. That's when you get support texts. So, I want you to look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. Paul thought it, he was inspired by God, so God thought it was imperative that, God, that Paul would be inspired to write these things in the early part of his letter to Timothy that he's left in charge of one of the most solid churches in the first century, the church of Ephesus. And Timothy, is supposed, he's in charge of the leadership there. He's supposed to make sure elders and deacons are doing what they're supposed to be doing. He's appointing them. And this is in the book. There's three books, the pastoral epistles, that are specifically designed around church leadership. And that's First and Second Timothy and Titus. So here, in the start of these pastoral epistles, God thought it necessary to mention this. Look at this. The charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. How do you, how do you shipwreck if you've never been on the ship? How do you shipwreck a ship that doesn't exist? Some have shipwrecked their faith. And look at this. Among them who are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So these people, Hymenaeus and Alexander, are named in Scripture as people who were solid in their ship of faith and have now shipwrecked their faith. There's more. Let me, let me show you something that Jesus said. In John chapter 15, that, that's probably, out of all the chapters in the Bible, John chapter 15 is probably my favorite. It's very encouraging, and it gives you a good snapshot of the nature of God, and it is that He wants to lift us up. That is what He wants to do. And, and Jesus is saying these things. I want you to look at John chapter 15, verse 4. He says, Abide in me, and I in you. Stay in me. And I'll stay in you. What if you don't? Is, what does this mean? Why would he tell people this verbiage? Why would he say, stay in me, if there's a possibility that you could leave? Look at this. Go further in John chapter 15, verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, do you see there's a possibility that people could leave? If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. That's some strong language there, Jesus. I'm not going to argue with him. I believe this, his words are true. God inspired him, and he's God in the flesh. So I trust Jesus' words. Do you? Okay, we go a little bit further. Look, we'll look at the next verse and read a few that follow. Um, Starting with verse 7, if you, let me just read it the right way. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. That's, that's cool. I really like that. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. 
As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Stay in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I want you to look at a little bit later in John. Jesus prays a very earnest prayer. He is approaching the cross. And he prays this prayer. And in John's Gospel, we get a very good snapshot of an intimate moment with Jesus and the Father, the Son and the Father, just before the big task that the Son has to do happens. And in chapter 17, verse 12, He's talking to his father very intimately. Look at this. He says, while I was with them, talking about his 12 disciples, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. So he, and there's many words before this, obviously, but Jesus is talking about Judas. He's talking about, I have kept them. They were with me. I have not lost any of them, except Judas. There are people that would argue and say, no, Judas was never saved to begin with. It's not what Jesus just said. Go with Scripture. I know, I know this might fly in the face of a whole lot of other teachings that are out there because a lot of people have embraced Calvinism as if it's Scripture. But my Bible and your Bible teaches something different. So I'm going to go with Scripture. There's more. I want to take you to a couple more passages, and I think you're going to find one of them very encouraging. But this one, mm, not so much. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 25 through 27. And I don't I didn't give credit where credit is due. This is I think this is this might be the New Living Translation. I'm not sure, but it's not the English Standard Version. I changed it because I actually translated it in the Greek and memorized it in that and so now when I quote it I say it differently. So I, I wanted to put it something here that I, I could get through without messing it up too bad. So here's what it says. And let us, hold on before we go too far, I know it's going behind me but just hold on. Let us. The book of Hebrews is written to Christians who happen to be Jewish but it applies to us, Christians. Let us. He is not writing to Satanists He's not talking to evil people going, let's. That's not what he's doing. He's saying something to Christians. Specifically, you will see, this is for us. He says, (laughs) I turned the page. I'm, I'm so excited about the next one. All right. He says, let us not neglect our meeting together. It's what Christians are supposed to do. But as some people do, some translations, as some are in the habit of doing. Some in the church have gotten in the habit of not attending. My Bible and your Bible says, let's not do that. Some have gotten in the habit of not attending. Don't, don't do that. Let's not stop meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. But let us encourage one another all the more, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Dear friends, If we deliberately keep on sinning, what sin is that? Well, any deliberate sin, any continual sin leads to hell. But contextually speaking, 
don't give up meeting together and encourage one another. So do those things. If we deliberately keep on sending, if you don't keep meeting together, if you don't keep encouraging each other, those certainly apply. Would you agree? Any continual sin, but those two definitely contextually fit. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received knowledge of the truth, there is no longer any sacrifice that remains, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Ouch! Don't let anybody say, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. <laughs> the Bible says you could become an enemy of God if you're going to have it, of not meeting with other Christians on a regular basis and not encouraging one another. I, I did a test, and I, I should have told you this. I don't know if I'd done this already or not, but um, there was a, there's a lot of information out there, but do you know it takes, my number is, I'll take the number seven, because it sounds more holy than six. It's closer to six. But for the number of times it takes for every negative comment to nullify the negative comment, it takes seven times positive comments to get those people that were just negatively bashed or whatever to come back to even. And you know what kind of world we live in? Almost everything that flies out of people's mouths is negative. Almost everything you... When you get on social media, which you should get off uh, as much as possible, I happen to keep social media because I've got friends that I have not talked to in so many years, and that's our only connection, and we stay connected. That's my main thing. And I want to use social media for positive impacts. That's what I want to do. But if you spend much time surfing around, wandering aimlessly and pointlessly on social media, you're going to be inundated with negative, 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 negative. That's what's going to happen. And it takes seven times a positive statement to nullify one negative. You're not going to get that on social media. You're not going to get that in most conversations. But Christians of all people, if we're going to be the salt of the earth, if we're going to spice this place up, if we're going to, if we're going to make this a better place for the glory of God, we've got to be those people who are putting in those seven and beyond positive things. Build each other up. And of all places, for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are getting slammed, build them up. Don't just think good things. Tell them good things. Say the things that you... Find the good in others and tell them that you see it in them. Can you imagine what kind of church this would be if we all did that on a regular basis? Our atheist friends would love being around us if we did that kind of thing all the time. If we would just do what Scripture teaches, encourage one another, Christians... And all the more, as you see the day approaching. I don't know how in the world I did that, but God's guiding me in a weird thing here. Oh, look at this. I'm a magician. All my other notes went away. I've got one page. It's tucked in my Bible somewhere. I don't know how I did that. Some of you might have caught how I did If you saw how I did that, please tell me, because I want to try that magic trick another day. All right. So, I'm assuming that my next passage is Second <laughs> Peter Chapter 2. Go ahead and move to that next slide. I want to make sure it's the right thing. It's wrong. All right, let's find my magic trick. All right, I'll try this. I found them. Here we go. Oh, good. 
Y'all are in trouble for a minute because I was going to uh, have a whole lot more to give you now. I've got to my, on my right page. Here we go. <clears throat> this is the passage that I've been wanting to share with you because this passage right here is one that causes people a lot of grief. People read this and get discouraged. Some read this, some Christians read this and, and get suicidal. Ooh, was that good timing or what? Boom! I want to show you how this, is, this can be one of the most encouraging passages in the Bible concerning your, the destiny of your soul. First, I'll take you to the place where it feels not very encouraging. So we'll read it. Hebrews 6, 4 and following. For it is impossible. In the case of those who have once been enlightened. What do you, what do you think of when you think of enlightened? Do you think of a light bulb going off in your head? Ah. And when you're talking about Christianity, what does that mean? For those who have once been enlightened, they figured it out. That's something you want people in your family that don't know Christ. You want them to be enlightened. You want them to light bulb to go off. Aha. You want that. Their life will be so much better if they could just get it. That Jesus loves them and that he will help them through whatever they're going through. That's kind of the message in First and Second Peter. There is hope beyond your struggles. You're going to struggle. There's hope beyond your struggles. It's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift. Oh, let's talk about that. Because people say, wow, that doesn't mean they're Christian. Well, let me tell you what the Hebrew writer does in Hebrews chapter 2. It, talks, it describes Jesus. It says he tasted death. <laughs> doesn't that mean he died? Okay, so we'll go ahead and go with that. Uh, they, they've tasted the heavenly gift. They've had the heavenly gift. They know what it's like to have the gift of God, which is Christ Jesus, and have shared in the Holy Spirit. They have the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit. Non-Christians don't get that. We're talking about Christians. Okay? And have tasted the goodness of the Word of God. They believe that the Word of God is good. They know it's good. Just like Jesus tasted death, they know this is good. All right? And the powers of the age to come, they believe that God is sovereign. So it's impossible if these people that understand Christianity, know it, believe it, and have embraced it. It's impossible if they, look at this, it says, and then if they, if they have fallen away. Now here, I heard a preacher preach on this. He's a preacher out of Kansas City. I told you about him before. His name was Jeff Adams. <laughs> Not me. But anyway, he, uh, he, he was going through this. And I actually turned the TV on to watch what he was going to do with this passage. What are you going to do with this? I know you believe in Calvinism. I know you believe once saved, always saved, because you always say that. So what are you going to do when you get to a passage that says, that's not true. It says you can fall away. You know what he did? He read this and he goes, you can't fall away. And then he didn't comment on it, just moved on. So it's impossible if these people who were once Christians, if they fall away, to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt or to public disgrace. Wow. It's impossible if you've been saved once you fall away to be brought back to repentance. That depresses some people because they start thinking, you know, I, I really committed. I was on that spiritual mountaintop. Of, I, I've backslid. I've, uh, I don't know how God could 
forgive me. That's what people do. They get to this passage like, I think I'm, I think I'm this. No, you're not. Can't be. Impossible. It's impossible for you to fit in this impossibility. It's impossible because if you can think about the destiny of your own soul, then you're capable of repenting. Repent means change your mind. If you're capable of changing your mind, then you don't fit here. Because this says, people who are here, it's impossible for them to repent. You're in the process of evaluating the destiny of your own soul, which means you're not lost forever. This means that you can be forgiven. Here's the way, if you don't know the nature of God, understand this, if you sincerely want to be forgiven, God's so ready to give that to you. He's not wanting to keep that from you. You want to be forgiven? He wants to forgive you. So if that's you, he's ready to forgive you. But there is a key element, a piece that cannot be missing. And here it is. It's this word right here. Repent. Do you know that word repent? It means change your mind. Can you put it to that slide there, JC? Is that the next slide? Yeah, I thought so. The question is, is that what you're ready to do if you need to do it? Not all of us are. There are some of us that have wandered a little bit. <laughs> we've, we've gotten away from that narrow gate that only few will enter through. We decided to veer off to one side or the other because we've gotten discouraged, because we've gotten distracted. For whatever reason, the devil has gotten us off focus and we need to repent. That's the key element. You want forgiveness? You need repentance. God is so ready to forgive you if you want to be forgiven. You have to do your part. You need to repent. Today, if you're one who has been thinking, I just, I don't, I don't like all this. You, know, this. you could possibly walk away from Christ. I feel like I've, I've not really been where I need to be spiritually. The key isn't focusing on the subject of whether or not you can walk away from Christ. The key is, do you want to be close to him? He wants to be close to you. Can you not tell? He is trying to reach out and put his arm around you right now. Reach back. Repent. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word that is so powerful. Thank you for clearing up a subject that's definitely muddy waters from history going so far back. God, you have been so faithful and given us clear direction. Help us to follow. Lord, forgive us when we fail you. Forgive us when we get discouraged. Forgive us when we get off focus. Forgive us when we veer off to the right or to the left. Lord, thank you for reaching out, even in a difficult subject like this, and trying to wrap your arm around us and say, I've got you. If you simply will come back to me. Thank you, Lord, for loving us so much. No matter the things that we do, you keep reaching out to us. You're amazing, Lord. Help us to be the salt of the earth. Help us to encourage one another. Help us to continue to meet together. And God, may we shine our light so that you can be illuminated for this lost world that is in so desperate need of you. Lord, help us, as we need it. In Jesus' name, amen.